I'm not sure uh, necessarily that I should admit, admit this, but one of the most deeply held values of Wishart men is sitting around and quoting our favorite movies. It just never ever gets old, and when it starts at the table, the daughters-in-law just roll their eyes and let it go, and it's, it's always funnier like the fifth or sixth time something gets quoted. One of the one of the favorite movies that they had when they were little was um, the cult, the now cult classic, uh, The Princess Bride. And besides, uh, stop that rhyming now. I mean it. Does anybody want a peanut? Uh, and th this one stands out to me because our middle son, Adam, who when he was young could never have been accused of being a poet, said that line wrong every single time. He always said, stop that rhyming. I mean it now. <laughs> Does anybody want to milk a cow? I mean, you know, we just couldn't answer, and it was always disappointing to him. But, <laughs> but beyond that, sorry, probably too much for you to know there. But besides that, um, I think the best shtick in that movie has to be Inigo Montoya's retort on about the 49th time of Visick saying inconceivable when he says you keep using that word but I do not think it means what you think it means it's unfortunate that the word righteousness has been flattened today to 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 connote uh, primarily if not exclusively some kind of usually off-putting personal piety. It's a word we keep using, but I do not think it means what we think it means. Because the ancient biblical conception of righteousness is far more robust and expansive and good, not just for us, but for our neighbors. In fact, Proverbs 11.10 says something totally counterintuitive to our ears. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Why? Because the righteous, in Hebrew, it's the word tzadakim, are the just, the people who follow God's heart and ways and who see everything that they have as gifts from God to be stewarded for his purposes. The righteous are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community while the wicked are those who put their own economic, social, and personal needs ahead of the needs of the community. This definition of righteousness is the only thing that makes this verse sensible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be. After all, there are these people in the city who are prospering. They're flourishing in their jobs, their health, and their finances. This fortunate group of people has dominion, wealth, and standing. They're at the top. And by the way, I just have to bracket that word dominion. I do not mean it the way it is. I do not mean it as domination. I mean it as having Power. Power is not a bad thing for people who steward it well. 
And in Genesis 1.26, when God created Adam and Eve in his image, the first thing he told them to do was have dominion. We are designed to have dominion. And this is why people are so upset, why it's so hurtful to them when they feel like their power has been stripped from them. We must understand that that is a God-given desire. Corrupted, but God-given. But as the righteous thrive, the entire city, including those at the bottom, celebrates. Given human nature, that is just strange. A more plausible and familiar scenario would be marked by anger, jealousy, and resentment from those at the bottom of the economic ladder. And we've seen that. Our cities are not rejoicing. But instead, the prospering of the righteous is a cause for rejoicing because the tzadakim view prosperity not as a means of self-enrichment or self-aggrandizement, but rather as a means for blessing others. As the tzadakim prosper, they steward everything, their time, their talent, and their treasure, their money, their vocational position and, and expertise, their assets, their resources, their opportunities, education and relationships, their social position, their entree, and their networks. They steward these things for the common good, for the advancing of God's justice and shalom. And when the people at the top act like this, and by the way, by the world's standards, we're all pretty much at the top, the whole community cheers. Imagine that. When the righteous prosper, life gets better for everyone. And the word rejoice in Proverbs 11.10 is very important. It's a unique term used only one other time in the Old Testament. It carries military connotations and describes ecstatic joy, the, the exaltation and triumph people express in celebration when they've been delivered from the hand of an oppressor. So rejoice is a big, robust word. It's deep, passionate rejoicing, not a happy, clappy birthday party, but a World War II VE day rejoicing. The war is over and we're free. It's soul-soaring exaltation. So the righteous, in their prospering, must be making a remarkably positive difference in their city. They must be stewarding their time, talent, and treasure for the common good to bring out noticeable and significant transformation. Otherwise, what would be prompting the residents there to go crazy with gladness and gratitude? Clearly, the Tzadakim's stewardship entails much more than taking their old clothes to goodwill. No, this dancing in the streets rejoicing occurs when the tzadakim advance justice and shalom in the city in such ways that vulnerable people at the bottom stop being oppressed, start having genuine opportunity, and begin to enjoy spiritual and physical health and economic sufficiency and security. That's what the righteous do. 
And that's why it's important that we start here. Because I don't know if you noticed, but three of the four readings we read this, this morning were comparing and contrasting the righteous and the wicked. And specifically, Psalm 1 talking about their prospering. Psalm 1 not only talks about it, but I believe gives us three practical ways that we can re-engage in righteousness. I really love that blessed or blessed is the very first word of the Psalms. Blessed is the person who. It's as if God is establishing from the start, I want you to be blessed. I want you to be happy, to have a life that contributes meaningfully to the life of others. I want you to prosper in everything that you do. That's what verse three says. And it's, by the way, it's in your bulletin. We read that this morning, but the state of being blessed or happy isn't a reward. Rather, it's the byproduct of a particular kind of righteousness that's been formed in us. I love that Steve talked last week specifically about formation. But this kind of formation in righteousness is exactly as a tree with a, a water supply, as, exactly as a tree with a consistent water supply naturally flourishes. God is saying, I want you to be as good at being a person as a well-watered tree is at being a tree. Good things coming from you at the appointed time, just as fruit comes from a well-watered tree at the appointed time. You may need to be patient, but I have good things in mind for you in due time. That's wonderful. But there is a darker side to Psalm 1 and to Jeremiah 17 and to Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. And it's summarized succinctly in Psalm 1 in a little simile. In verse 4, it tells us that the wicked, the unrighteous, are like chaff that the wind blows away. The picture is of winnowing in which good grains of wheat and its useless outer husk, are, the chaff, are tossed with a pitchfork up into the wind. The wind blows the lighter chaff away while permitting the grain, the part with substance, to fall to the ground where it's gathered up and put to good use. Chaff is something light and useless. It's part of the crop, but it's a part to be thrown away. So the quote-unquote wicked are depicted here as lightweights, without substance. In Jeremiah, they're depicted as desiccated and barren. But there's love, even in this warning, because God is saying through them, I don't want this for you. I don't want your life to prove in the end to be chaff. I want your life to be fruitful, verse 3. I don't want you to perish. I want to know you, verse 6. I want to recognize and affirm you, to lift up the light of my countenance upon you when all is said and done, which begs a practical question. Okay, if this is truly what God wants, how do we get there? What advice does he give for how our lives will prove to have substance. How do we do that? I believe we get three bits of very strong advice here. One of them is by choosing good company. The second is by choosing good words. And number three, choosing community. I'd like to look briefly at each of these and explore their fulfillment 
in Jesus. So number one, choosing good company. Blessed is the person, we're told, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. By the way, that is how formation happens. By standing and sitting and spending time in a particular environment. That's how we're formed, or one of the ways that we're formed. So what they're saying here is whether we are walking or standing or sitting, that is, in every conceivable situation in which we find ourselves, we choose good company. So what does that mean? Well, I think for sure it means to deliberately seek out relationships with righteous people, to give them some level of dominion in our lives, because that's one of the key ways in which we're formed by the influence of those with whom we spend significant time. And I realize I just got done saying that, but we, are we supposed? to withdraw from the world. Is that what's being said in verse 1? Are we supposed to search the cultural landscape to ascertain who all the moral losers are, the bad guys, also that we can have nothing to do with them? Well, that would be a Pharisaic reading of verse 1, and it would be wrong. And even if we could, which we can't, it doesn't work. Because even if we could pull away from all the bad people, we would still be there with us. And you may already suspect this, but you are way less than perfect. And so am I. Groucho Marx demonstrated this truth perfectly in his refusal to join any club that would allow him to be a member. <laughs> it is a brutal reality of life that wherever we go, there we are. But there's something even more profound than that. For the Christian, it can't be the kind of Benedict option withdrawal because of Jesus, whose life someone describes and who fully engaged with all sorts of quote unquote bad people. Think about Zacchaeus, a wealthy tax collector who was involved in hands-on horrible systemic evil who made his vast amounts of money by using Roman power at his back to shake down his own people. But Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house for lunch. Pharisees wouldn't have anything to do with him. Or the shunned and cynical Samaritan woman who was a serial adulterer. Jesus spent a long, dusty afternoon lovingly talking with her in defiance of every conventional cultural moor. And he still does that with you and me, hanging out with us even during our really bad moments. He doesn't disappear. And amid our stupid and selfish choices, all the moments we'd rather not have him around at all. But the question remains, what does it mean to choose good company? And I believe it is at least partly this. We do what we can to make the company we're in to make the company that we choose good, or at least better. Using our dominion to push back as, as the occasion warrants against attitudes and the perspectives and the practices that displease God and diminish people. Jesus welcomed Zacchaeus. He welcomed the Samaritan woman, but he also turned their lives around. He chose comp good company by making 
his company good. Always working in that direction. Now I know we are not Jesus. We cannot make people good. But we can work to make them better, for sure. But practically, how could this play out in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, let's start with something bite-sized, something we probably all have on our person at this moment, our cell phones. We can use our phones to dunk on and bully people. We can use our phones to comfort and encourage people. We can use them to forward true things that enhance community, build it up, and make it better. Or we can pass along lies and conspiracies and accusations and other things that destroy community and make it worse. We can use our phones to work at making our friends and colleagues better people or to bring out and feed their darker side. Which is it? What sort of company are you making? And think about our schools and our workplaces. Are they cynical? Are they bitter places? Are they places of scoffing in verse 1? Are, 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 are their policies and practices harmful to the world, harmful to people, dishonoring to God? Are their counsels wicked? Verse 1. God desires that we make school and make work better and to make school and make work safer as we have dominion and opportunity. This is why gaining righteous dominion in the world is a good thing if it's stewarded well. You get a promotion at work, your coworkers should be rejoicing because things are gonna get better for everyone. Now some of them won't. realized I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach too long today. Steve told the joke wrong last week, by the way. You know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch, right? Nothing. <laughs> God desires that we spread good reports about people rather than diminish them. He desires that we treat all people, even those who are hard on us, i.e. our enemies, with dignity. He desires that we encourage and work hard for policies and practices in our businesses and schools that please him. Policies and practices that are just, policies and practices that are good and right. And this takes incredible discernment <laughs> because we are living in a day when there is so much swirling around that is not good, even though it masquerades as good. But that's one of the ways we choose good company. We work toward making our companies good, our professions good, our schools good, and our friends good, or at least better. We also pursue righteousness by choosing good words. In verse 2, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is saying, delight in my instruction. That's what law means here. The Hebrew word is Torah. Delight in the fullness of Torah. My promises, my warnings, my instructions, my stories, my commands, and my desires. We love everything that God says because we love him and because we trust him. He desires that we love his words so much that we think about them all the time. We meditate on them day and night, allowing his words to form us, to shape us, 
and our hopes about life and about ourselves. Allowing his words to form our behavior, our speech, our direction, our ways of discerning culture, our ways of thinking about him, our ways of thinking about politics. And once again, Jesus helps us understand what this looks like in actual practice. He wasn't weird about it at all. He didn't cloister himself in a cave and read scrolls all the time. No, he spent vast amounts of his time with people. He wasn't lost in study. But Torah engaged him. Torah animated him. Torah delighted him and directed him. Even as a growing boy, there was much about Torah he didn't yet understand. And so he paused, not just for a couple of minutes in the morning, but for three days in the temple and made his parents crazy just to ask questions of some who knew Torah better than he did. We don't have to be Bible experts, but we must ask humble questions of the scriptures all the time coming back and back and back and allowing them to shape us. So diligent was Jesus as a boy that by the time he, be he began his public ministry, he was able to apply Torah amid fierce temptations in the wilderness. He answered every temptation with scripture, even when the temptation involved twisting scripture. And so filled was Jesus with Torah that in his, his speech, his it was astonishing, it was mesmerizing, wise, truthful, beautiful, and utterly reliable. And he never belittled people when they belittled him. It's said of Jesus that no man ever spoke like this man because he lived out of Torah. Good words in, good words out. That's how he lived his life. Which leads us to some questions. How well do we know Torah? How, how do we delight in Torah? How much time did you take last week, for example, to pause in Torah, to let God's word shape you by reading or listening versus how much time did you spend listening to podcasts or reading about politics or cultural issues? By the way, I did a self-assessment uh, of myself. If, by definition, a self-assessment, I guess, is of yourself. But um, And I was on the latter bit of that. So this question is very much for me, as well as you. Karl Barth famously said, take your Bible and take your newspaper but re and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. Is Torah the default setting for our thinking, or is it something else, say cable news? Are you reading culture through Torah or Torah through culture? These are fundamentally different things, and most of the time stand in opposition. What's your source? Think about, just, just for a minute, about how powerful social media can be. Do we spend so much time on our devices that they, rather than Torah, dominate our sense of who we are and who we're called to be? Have we been seduced away from the reality that we are not our masters, we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Has media started to define for us what's ultimately important in, in life? Is, is it defining who our friends are and who our enemies are? Or is Torah doing these things? What's your source? Okay. 
choosing good company, choosing good words. I realized that was prophetic and confrontational. This won't be as much. <laughs> Finally, we pursue righteousness by choosing good company. And this is twofold. Firstly, company, robust our community, robust community with fellow believers who can help us see the truth about ourselves and communion with Christ, the only one who has ever lived the perfectly righteous life. These are implied more than explicit in this passage, by the way. God didn't give us Psalm 1, though, as a nice, comfortable list of things to do so we could be nice and happy people. No, if you ever took Psalm 1 seriously, you'd see that it doesn't do that for you. God gave us Psalm 1 to disturb us, to provoke us. The righteous life God desires us to live, if we're honest, is beyond our reach. It's beyond our practice, and it's beyond our ability. More disturbing still, the stakes on our success or failure to live that kind of life are unbearably high. They're here in this psalm. It tells us if we're not like the righteous person, or if we're not like Jesus, we'll perish. That's the word the psalm uses. We'll be forgotten, not known, not remembered. Our lives and legacies blown off like chaff. The stakes are so high that we lie to ourselves in order to feel okay. In fact, we can't not lie to ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So who is the easiest person for you to fool? Yourself. That's who. So we must choose robust community with fellow believers who can lovingly help us see the truth about ourselves. This is one of the reasons our vestry has made reconnecting in community one of our highest priorities this year. And if you did not have a chance to, haven't had a chance to sign up yet or to fill out the survey or talk to Steve, talk to Steve today. We are putting those groups together this week. They're, it's not too late. And this is a step toward that. So there's the commercial, shameless. We're also to, must choose communion with Christ, and this is critical. Because even in our best moments, our lives remain flawed and self-centered. We never measure up perfectly to verses 1 and 2. So how can we possibly have hope? Well, here's the good news. Because Jesus did. Every moment of every day, every minute of his life. And he knew that the only way for, good, for the good outcomes of Psalm 1 to come to us was for him to trade places and destinies with us. That's, by the way, the story that we reenact every week at the Lord's table. In Jesus, God came among us to live out the life that we should live but don't live and can't live. So does this mean we just throw up our hands and stop trying, just kind of let go and let God? Absolutely not. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. We work 
but knowing that Jesus has already given his life as if it were our own while taking on himself our less lovely lives, our Torah trivializing lives, our often cynical lives and words, our lives of stupid and even wicked choices as if they were his. And having made that life swap, Jesus swapped destinies with us as well. He took on our deserved destiny, forgotten, cast off, chaff, and gave us his destiny, remembered, fruitful, blessed. Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a relief to know that right now at God's right hand is a fellow traveler, our friend, our brother, our substitute, who lived these words to God's fullest satisfaction and to know that his life counted not just for his sake, but it counted for our sake. We aren't now what we'll one day be, but if we belong by faith to Jesus, our disregard of Torah, our cruelties, our, our scoffing and our failure to live righteous lives, though they must and will come to an end, are no longer held against us, ever. Thanks be to God.